Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 24 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. So, okay, today, let's talk about death. I bet you're wondering how that could possibly make your day better. In our culture especially, we keep busy so we don't have to think about death, to forget about death, to try to escape it. But we can't escape death, and we know that. But we can think about it later, right? Let's talk about something else and think about death later, right? I say, let's talk about it now and make our later a little better. It really can help with that, I promise. Thinking about death can make life joyous and meaningful and can build or strengthen our sense of connection with everyone and everything. You know, meditating on death is a traditional Buddhist practice, and it's also a central practice uh, with the Stoics. In the Satipatthana Sutta from the Pali Canon, which is best known for teaching mindfulness and what is now practiced in contemporary Vipassana, it goes into some not-so-pleasant detail about meditating on corpses in charnel grounds in ancient India, describing stages of decomposition that the ancients would observe. You know, I'm going to share a little from the sutra, but I warn those not quite up to listening, that they should take their earbuds out for a minute or two. I'll pause here to give you a minute. Pause, pause, pause. Okay, now, the sutra describes, quote, a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or various kinds of worms, eventually turning into bones rotten and crumbling to dust. On observing this, the monk reminds himself that this body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate, unquote. Okay, you can put your earplugs back in, I mean, your earbuds back in now. You know, and the Stoics talked of death frequently, like in the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, where he writes, quote, bear in mind that everything that exists is already fraying at the edges and in transition, subject to fragmentation and to rot, unquote. Death meditation is helpful in many ways, particularly today in our Western culture where dying and death are kept outside and away from our daily lives. Many of us have not observed someone dying, not even a loved one. Of course, we have all experienced the death of loved ones in our lives. Not all of us have been there when it's happening. I've observed people at the very end of life, very close to death, but I have not been there during the final stage. And I doubt if I'm unusual in this, even at 66 years old. 
But meditating or just thinking about death can help us live more fully. Reflecting on death can help us remember that the things we find attractive or desirable are, quote, shiny on the outside, but on the inside pitiful, as the Stoic philosopher Seneca put it. Remembering this helps put things in better perspective. You know, remember my talks about right view, where I said everything is about perspective. Soon we may not be around to grasp at those shiny things. And this helps us develop a sense of equanimity about things and circumstances in our lives. But death meditation isn't for everyone. I get that. If thinking about death elicits aversion or great fear and not equanimity, then it's best to stick with mindfulness meditation. Yet we can go too far the other way, not thinking about it at all because of a fear of death, denying it. You know, according to the existential psychotherapist Irvin Yalom in his book Staring at the Sun, the fear of death is with us all the time, he says, whether we realize it or not. He writes that even if we are not disabled by that fear of death, death anxiety sneaks into our life in many different disguises. He thinks it's what causes us to distract ourselves through the pursuit of wealth and status, for instance, or seek comfort through a complete merging with another or a complete merging with the cause. He claims that this denial, quote, always exacts a price, narrowing our inner life, blurring our vision, blunting our rationality. Ultimately, self-deception catches up with us, unquote. He goes on to explain that many of us have had the experience of being shaken out of our denial of death by a crisis like terminal illness or bereavement. And unexpectedly, Yalom argues, such experiences can evoke a sense of awakening, leading to a dropping away of trivial concerns, a reprioritization of what matters in life, and a heightened perception of the beauty around us. He writes, quote, though the physicality of death destroys us, the idea of death saves us. I like that. I'm going to say that again. Though the physicality of death destroys us, the idea of death saves us. I think this is one of the key ways meditating on death can make us appreciate life more. When we remember our time is limited or even short, our perspective changes radically. We've probably all experienced this sort of in the days of like feeling good after having the flu or the first days of walking without a cast, or during the hours and days following a natural disaster in our neighborhood, or as some of us experienced in the hours and days following September 11th, 2001. It's pain, sadness, and grief, but then the crystal clear realization of how beautiful life really is, and how beautiful everyone around us is and how grateful we are to have them. We stop a little quicker when we are about to get angry with our children, spouse, co-worker, and neighbors. The Stoics said it, and our teachers say it. Life is short, 
and death can happen at any time. We don't know when. This teaching of preparing to die, or as many great spiritual teachers, even like the Prophet Muhammad said, die before you die. Some of you, have may, some of you may have heard about the book uh, A Year to Live by Stephen and Andrea Levine. Stephen, who taught and wrote about death and dying, um, passed away from cancer in 2016, but was interviewed by Tricycle Magazine. And he answered the question, why is it so important to think about dying? Well, his answer, quote, because we are all going to die. If we could bring that reality into our heart, that would be practice unto itself, unquote. In that interview, he talked about how he shared with the Dalai Lama that they were working on a book called A Year to Live, exploring the practice of living as if the present year were our last. And the Dalai Lama questioned them that maybe if those who started the practice might run amok as and so Stephen phrased the Dalai Lama as if they had imagined the end was coming. Wouldn't they just grab a lady or a guy and a bottle of tequila and head for the beach? But Stephen shared, no, that's not what they found out in their studies. He said, quote, when people know that they are going to die, that last year is often the most loving, most conscious, and most caring, even under conditions of poor concentration, the side effects of medication, and so on, unquote. He ended up saying, so don't wait to die until you die. Practice now. The Dalai Lama teaches, quote, there are two ways to deal with suffering and problems. The one is simply to avoid the problem. That's one way. The other is to look directly at the problem and analyze it and make it familiar to oneself. See, in, in this way, I guess death is no different than any of the other issues we look at using Buddhist practice to make our lives better. We know the three marks of existence, as mentioned in the Dhammapada. They are the three things that characterize our very existence. They're impermanence, or anicca, unsatisfactoriness, or suffering, called dukkha, and no self, or non-self, anatta. And we know we suffer from delusion about all three of those things, so much so that we suffer twice, or the so-called second arrow. We suffer over our own suffering. We know that things are impermanent, that everything is, all of our lives and everything and everyone in our lives. And we cling to things as if they are permanent, as if our very clinging can possibly make them permanent. And we know that the way to help alleviate our clinging and ultimately our suffering is to practice seeing things exactly as they are, not as we wish they would be. Doing what is important, meditating on our lives, meditating on our deaths. I think that's how you pronounce it, Sasep. Tolko Rinpoche, a respected teacher in the Galupa School, was interviewed by Buddha Weekly for their special issue called Learning How to Die and Why Meditating on Death May Bring Joy to Life, What the Buddhist Teachers Say About End of Life, Dying, and Palliative Care. 
He said, Rinpoche said, quote, the purpose of death meditation is to inspire an energy to practice, even if for just 10 minutes a day. He said to think about what is more important, sending another text message or meditating for 10 minutes. He went on to relate a little story about something I think we're all familiar with in this culture. He said, just last week I was on the streetcar and I saw this man in his car sending text messages and smoking a cigarette and also sipping on coffee. He was doing four things at the same time, driving, texting, smoking, and drinking coffee. I thought to myself, why? Isn't that a bit stressful, trying to do four things at once? I could see he was stressed out. That's why he was smoking. I could see he was tired. That's why he was drinking coffee. Rinpoche's point was that we need to double-check our priorities to make sure we're spending each minute of our lives aligned with what we consider important. I'm currently in a one-month class with the Toto Institute called Taking Action, finish, Finishing the Unfinished or Unstarted. It's the class I promoted in my last episode with Greg Creech. In this class, we each select a project and each of the classmates select their own project to work on through the month. The trick is to pick something that you will focus your energy on. It isn't so much that you will focus and do nothing else, but that you will maintain your focus on it every day, if only for five minutes a day. He has each student post their project, its status, obstacles to it, why it's important, and what you hope to give up to keep focused on it, and your hopes for the course overall. He also has you do something a little um, <laughs> scary. He has you calculate how many days you have left to live. In that calculation exercise, he cautions that it may be hazardous to your comfort zone. This is the exercise which I'll share on my website for those of you brave enough to take a peek. Of course, none of us know when we will actually die, but the average number of days we can expect to live is 30,000, 30,000 days. Assuming for the moment that you will have an average life expectancy, calculate how many days you have left to live. You get this figure by calculating how many days you've already lived and then subtract that figure from 30,000. He then points to a time and date calendar found on the internet to help calculate that exact date. So for those of you now wondering about how many days I have, it's 5,840 as of Wednesday, March 6th. Now, when we really look in the face of our own mortality and realize that we have a relatively small number of days to live, it fine-tunes our focus on what is really important. Thinking about what is really important can change the course of your actions. The project I first decided to do for this course this month was to make a little more progress on the book I'm writing. The book is called Making Every Day Better, Everyday Buddhism Tips and Tricks. And yes, this is a promotion, wink, wink. I'm hoping to have it published by early midsummer, early to midsummer. Of course, the book is a priority, and it is really important. 
but I have a great project manager who set up a schedule for me and I've kept on or ahead of schedule. So it's going well. You know, I could always make more progress, but it's going well. So I got thinking about what I would regret not doing if my life was coming to an end. I thought about the big accomplishments I've been doing since last year, starting, writing, hosting, distributing, and promoting this podcast, starting and hosting a Facebook sangha based on the podcast, reading too many books to count to prepare for podcast interviews, writing my first book, and expanding the coaching segment of my career coaching and resume writing business. Because of all these quote-unquote urgent things, I seem to have to do all these urgent things I have to do to accomplish these commitments, the part of me that loves music and loves playing music got lost. I don't want to die without playing more music. My hopes for making this my course project is to have a more balanced life. I do meditate almost every day and do spiritual reading, but music has always had a wonderful influence on me, calming me, getting me out of my head, and opening my heart wider to include more play and joy. Although I hope for many more days than that 5,840, But the days I have left, I intend to have a little more fun with music while I'm accomplishing the other things I've set as my goals. But back again to the Levines in the Tricycle Magazine article. Andrea talked of the year to live practice and how in talking to people on their deathbeds, they would frequently hear, I wish I had taken a job for the love of the work, not for money. Or... I wish I had played and enjoyed myself more. And that's what she says. She says, quote, the beauty of the practice is that we can evaluate our lives even before we are on our deathbed. If we are not living the life we wish to live, well, how can we change that now while there's still time? Unquote. And she adds, quote, I can say this because I have cancer. And I know that once you get that diagnosis, no matter how much you already know, something happens. Everything becomes much more real. Ironically, it brings greater permission to be fully alive. I find it very exciting, unquote. The other beauty of the practice of thinking about death, I think, is that it fine-tunes our awareness that we're all in the same boat the boat that only averages 30,000 days on both the rough waters and the gentle rolling waves of life. When we remember that's all of us, our hearts expand and the compassion for others in this little boat of ours increases. We wish that they would all experience gentle rolling waves, but feel tenderness, tenderness toward them knowing that they have had and will have to face scary whitewater moments in life. You know, I thought of doing this podcast episode because of my grandmother. I was named Margaret Wendy Halet in honor of my grandmother. I was given her first name, Margaret, even though my family always called me Wendy, and I have been Wendy ever since. I was very close to my grandmother, so I kept an M as my first first initial throughout my life. 
I believe my grandmother is much of the inspiration behind my love of writing and my love of words. I spent most afternoons visiting my grandmother after school as an elementary school kid. My grandmother lived in a huge house just up the street from us in a, a little town in Ohio. During those afternoons, we would have tea. I would watch her soap opera with her, or we would play the dictionary game or read the birth announcements and the obituaries in the regional newspaper. And then we'd create stories of the lives of the new babies and the lives of those who recently passed. The dictionary game was that she would read a word and I would guess the meaning and try to spell it. Or I would read a word and she would try to spell and guess the meaning. Birth announcements. Do they even have those in small town and regional newspapers anymore? I don't imagine so. And actually, I don't even imagine there are many small town newspapers left at all. But reflecting on these activities I did with my grandmother, it reminds me of the teachings of Titnat Han about the nature of no birth and no death. My grandmother and I imagined the lives of those just coming and those going. Or as Titnat Han would probably say, no coming, no going. All a continuum and all interconnected. This bookend quote-unquote practice of reading others' lives and deaths formed a sort of river of life in my mind, the continuum that Titnat Han talks about. Although I don't think I realized it or even knew it at the time, or even much later, that the practice I did with my grandmother made others' lives very real for me. You know, my grandmother wasn't Buddhist. She was Methodist. She was much more about the story, the story we told each other about the lives we read about. But the interconnection, the sameness within the differences of each life, that was cemented in me in this practice. In the book Fear, Essential Wisdom for Getting Through the Storm by Titnat Han, he writes, quote, The cloud cannot become nothing. It is possible for a cloud to become rain or snow or hail, but it's not possible for a cloud to become nothing. That's why the view of annihilation is a wrong view. So birth and death are paired notions like coming and going, permanence and annihilation, self and other. The cloud appearing in the sky is a new manifestation. Before assuming the form of a cloud, the cloud was water vapor produced from water in the ocean and the heat of sunlight. You could call that her previous life. So being a cloud is only a continuation. There is no birth. There is only a continuation. That is the nature of everything. No birth, no death. For many of us, these notions of birth and death coming and going cause our greatest pain. We think the person we loved came to us from somewhere and has now gone away somewhere. But when conditions are sufficient, we manifest in a particular way. When conditions are no longer sufficient, we no longer manifest in that way. This doesn't mean that we don't exist. If we're afraid of death, it's because we don't understand that things do not really die. They continue to exist in many forms. Their spirit goes on. Therefore, when we look deeply into ourself, into our body, our feelings, and our perceptions, when we look into the mountains and rivers, 
or another person. We have to be able to see and touch the nature of no birth and no death in them. This is one of the most important practices in the Buddhist tradition, impermanence, unquote. You know, my death meditation practice continues to this day by reading obituaries, noticing how some people die very, very old, over a hundred years old. Some die very, very young as babies. Some die of disease. Some of old age. Sometimes we don't know of what. Some have lists of accomplishments in their obituaries. Some have lists of family members. Yet we all die. In today's Rochester Democrat and Chronicle obituaries, we know the friends and family are mourning Willie, Richard, Holly, Lillian, Mary Lou, Andrew, John, Johanna, Marie, Kathleen, Ernest, Henry, June, Margaret, Karen, Judy, Flora, Damien, Adele, Blanche, Stephen, Michael, and many more. Their ages ranged from 36 to 102, dying from sudden and long illnesses, old age, and accidents. It seems like coming and going from illnesses and accidents, but as Titnat Han reminds us, it is a manifesting in a different way. The cause of death is birth, and we know that it will happen to us. When? We don't know. Rich, poor, young, old. We try to forget. But we should always remember. Willie, Holly, Karen, Damien, and Michael. Remember them. We are them. We are always passing through manifesting in different ways all the time, every second. Remembering that will help us remember to use every second for good purpose and remind us to smile at the person next to us in the checkout. It could be their time or ours soon. If this seems like something you'd like to try, you know, obituary reflection seems like a good everyday Buddhism approach to death meditation. Let me know if you do try it and how it worked for you. You can post something on my public Facebook group or you can send me a private message through the page Everyday Buddhism on Facebook or message me via my website at everyday-buddhism.com. On that website, I've posted links to an article in the current issue of Tricycle on a good enough death. What does it look like to die well? I've also posted the link that to the article I referred to in this episode from Buddha Weekly. And I've posted the uh, link to Amazon to for Titnat Han's book, Fear, that I referred to in the episode as well. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast, comments on my website or the public Facebook group and the new private Facebook book study group, and all of you who donate to help me keep the content written, produced, and distributed. If I haven't replied to your messages yet, I will try to reach out with a private email of thanks. 
But if you're anxious, you can connect with me through my Dharma to go forum. For a small donation, you will be guaranteed a timely personal answer to your question. Dharma to go can be found at dharma-to-go.com or through the Dharma to go tab on my website. Please consider supporting my work, helping to sponsor more great activities and continuing podcasts through a recurring or one-time donation through the donate tab on my website, everyday-buddhism.com. So until next time, keep making your everydays better. (laughs) 